Welcome to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, and like you, I'm human. Being human is the one thing we all have in common. So understanding what's special about being human is essential to understanding ourselves. This podcast is a place to talk about what matters in human society and culture, and the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the Australian Catholic University, a hub for humanities study. Humanities researchers work on new understandings of the past and cogent analysis of the present, and on the way we hope they give us some clues as to how we'll cope with the future. Music is part of every society and culture. Melodies are essential to our lives, from our first lullabies to our final days. When we've lost our verbal memories or even our words, we still smile when they play our song. Music can move us to tears and it can prompt us to dance with joy. The poet William Congrave famously wrote that music has charms to soothe the savage beast. But music can also rev a group up to attack. Think of a military march, a Maori haka, even a footy club song. The music you've just heard is a fragment of Sinusure, composed by our guest today, composer and music researcher, Professor Tim McHenry. Tim researches and teaches music at ACU's Melbourne campus, and he's particularly interested in the evolution of art music in Western culture and in the contemporary music industry. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks for having me. An Australia Council study found that more than 90% of Australians listen to music at least once a week. Why does music matter so much to humans? Well, as long as we've been human, we have been musicians, consumers of it, producers of it. Um, we know from archaeological records that humans were making musical instruments 40,000 years ago out of the bones of birds. We know that uh, every culture at every point in our history has had some kind of engagement with music making to accompany ceremony, to, to celebrate, to, to be sad to, uh, to be entertained by. Um, so as we are humans, we are musicians. It is often said that music's existed in every place and time throughout history, but music serves different roles in different societies. Are there some common roles that almost every society has music for? And are there some that are really special and, and unique to a given society? Absolutely. Our sort of modern Western um, societies that we occupy are put music in the background to an extent in terms of an overt awareness of what it does and what functions it serves. When we look at other cultures, we see that music encodes knowledge and accompanies ceremony and, um, you know, partners in everyday activities in far more intricate ways. It still happens in the West, but we don't have this same sort of awareness of it. Um, and we almost treat it with contempt as a product, as, as a, a mere entertainment. But in fact, um, you know, if you think about a funeral and uh, appropriate music that might occur at a funeral and inappropriate music that might be used in a funeral, you very quickly become aware of the sort of taboos that surround the appropriate engagement with music. Uh, when we look at Australian Indigenous cultures, we see the extent to which music is integrated to the way in which their societies, their cultures operated, um, to map geography, to 
remember taxonomies of, of, of you know, what can be eaten and what, what is poisonous to help establish social boundaries, whether it be um, music that demarks particular ceremonies associated with being male and coming of age and so on. Um, we see intricate patterns. Um, and when we look at our own history, we see similar patterns uh, in operation, but we're just not necessarily aware of them to the same extent. So do we actually use music to deal with social issues in, in contemporary Australian society? Absolutely. Um, again, we're not necessarily aware of these sorts of things. But uh, come election time, you will see uh, politicians uh, presenting at a, at a national conference to launch their election campaign, and music will be part of that. Carefully chosen music will be part of that. We see um, ideas uh, around uh, the media, around entertainment, employing music in different ways. So the, the example I use with undergraduates is always imagery of war. Our capacity to understand um, the, the way in which we'd engage with violent imagery is so tied to music. You put a sad and slow soundtrack against images of violence and you will get a war protest film. You use those exact same images and put a rousing march, exciting, up-tempo, major key, and you'll have an action film. Um, the images are the same. Uh, and yet we don't necessarily perceive that it's the music that shapes that different response to the way in which a group of people would engage with that imagery. Um, you know, there are other examples as well around uh, what music does. Uh, I think about middle class music education. There are some things that are palatable, some things that demark learning um, and some things that aren't, you know, acceptable. So I, I noticed that a lot of young kids learn the piano and the violin far fewer middle-class parents part with money to have them have hip-hop lessons. So there's this sort of value and, uh, you know, awareness of what music is appropriate, what music is taboo that operates in society that we are all actually aware of when we think about it, but we don't necessarily talk about. And as a researcher, one of the things you do is identify what's going on there that we perhaps haven't noticed that, that is subliminal to our own experience of music. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, I've got interests around looking at music education. I've got interests in examining the way the federal government and arts bodies will fund music. And I've gotten interested in how people navigate a musical career and all these issues come to bear, um, even with academia and understanding that, that music is as pivotal to understanding the human condition as, you know, a historical investigation or a sociological investigation or a political science investigation. Music has something distinct to be able to contribute to these considerations of being human uh, because music has always been there. Um, to give you an example, um, Western liberal democracies tend to think music is an entertainment. Yet when you go just a little bit back in time and look at totalitarian regimes, they're awfully keen on banning music. They're awfully keen on controlling what music is consumed because they had an awareness that music and culture and the ordering of the state was something that were inextricably linked. Um, Western liberal democracies, we tend to hand some of these things over to what we perceive to be market forces. Um, you know, we'll let the music industry take care of what styles of music are generated. And we, we think it's a production of musical taste as to what is played on the radio and what music is used in films. Um, but the totalitarian regimes knew that there was a far more intricate sort of 
cultural battle going on in terms of what music might be acceptable and what might be understood. I'll give you an example. Um, Russia, America, Cold War. The Russians had a perception that the sort of music that they wanted the sort of music that was acceptable, the sort of music that should be funded by the states would be that which built up the worker, that which the worker could enjoy and could see as uh, being a positive engagement with, uh, you know, what it was to be a communist, um, you know, worker's paradise. Um, And the way that was conceptualised was that folk music was good, uh, music that... Uh, celebrated the lives of the the working person was good, but music that was too intellectual, music that was too rarefied or, you know, heady was problematic. It didn't build up the state. It needed to be resisted. And they, they lived that out by banning certain types of music. You then look at America's response in the context of a culture war. The American capitalist state said, we don't like or understand this weird, strange, modernist music, but we know the Soviet has banned it, therefore we'll fund it. And so you got this really strange situation arising where modernist music, the music of the serial tradition, the music of the atonal tradition was actively being funded in America. Um, sometimes even money being funneled through CIA satellite organisations in response to the fact that, you know, the Cold War enemy had banned this music. So music's there in the background and uh, there's this sort of untold story of, of how it becomes a weapon in a culture war. And why is it important to tell that story? Why is it important that people like you excavate those histories and tell us about it? Because the power that those totalitarian states were trying to harness in music is a real power. Uh, That power still exists. That power is used all the time. And highlighting the fact that the use of music has an ethical dimension to it is something that people don't really latch on to, but they should. They should understand that when they listen to one style of music over another, they should understand that when they take an attitude of this music is good, this music is bad, this music represents an educated person, this music represents someone who is culturally debased or disadvantaged, that there's a whole pattern of ethics and sort of cultural capital that sits behind that. And it's absolutely vital that we make overt some influences that are currently covert. Um, and, And I think you know, again, to give an example, um, which is oft told um, of, you know, the use of jazz throughout, you know, Australian music in the 20th century. We know jazz musicians were banned. We know they were banned in terms of entering Australia, partly because they were black, but it's also partly because the jazz music they were bringing with them was seen as somehow a contamination of the purity of what British or you know Australian musical culture was, and we see that today. We see that today with things like hip hop. We see that today with um, the musics of uh, marginalised groups, um, not necessarily being accepted in the concert hall, not being accepted in educational space, and us seeing that as well. We think Bach is good, but in fact, what we're saying has nothing to do with Bach. It has to do with the saying that we want to keep your music out of this space. And we will construct arguments around aesthetics and around history and around value that will couch what is actually an ethical decision to marginalise a particular group's expression of their culture and of their music. 
Is this why people are so passionate about music, why they say you know, they love jazz or they hate it, mm. they, they think opera's sublime or they think it's torture? You know, nobody's got, got wishy-washy tastes about music. They're very passionate. Indeed. And, you know, one of the things that I strive to do myself and I strive to inculcate in my students is the fact that we need to understand where our taste comes from and what it functions to do and that professional musicians ought to put taste in its place. You know, the motto I have is make your taste subject to your intellect because taste by its very nature is a kind of prejudice. And, you, you know, educated people oughtn't engage in prejudice. That's, that's sort of the line I take with my students. But with regard to the polarising power of music, people often think taste is a mechanism of their own agency. But actually, taste tends to be generated from the education they've had, the cultural background they've had, the sort of economic resources that they've enjoyed throughout their formative years. Um, you know, the example I do is, say, okay, Tim McHenry, 42-year-old male, I'm going to make three statements and you can decide which is true. And I want you to reflect on what you think about me based on which one is true. Okay. One. I love the music of J.S. Bach. His counterpoint is sublime. Two, I love the music of Miles Davis. Nothing is cooler than, than hearing that music and putting myself back in those heady times of the 1950s and the fundamental change that that music brought about. Three, I love the musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, you know, watching Cats is just my idea of the perfect night out. The fact of the matter is, someone who is vaguely familiar with those three repertoires will make a decision about who I am and what I like as a result of one of those three statements. And they're quite powerful statements. That They function to create a, a sort of cultural taboo about what social circles I move in, what lifestyle choices I might have or may or may not have made, and so on. Uh, and it's all about the music. Music demarks social groups in the most powerful way. So we might say, you know, you're wearing black, you're a goth, you're wearing a suit, so you fit into a particular middle-class paradigm of success. Um, you have torn jeans, therefore you, you are this, but actually music does it even more powerfully because music isn't just sound. It's accompanied by all this in knowledge around what this music functions to do, where you might listen to this music, where you might be able to access that music and so on. So if you are, as a young person, wanting to establish an independent identity, you will most certainly use music to help forge that identity, not just to separate yourself from your parents, but to separate yourself from your peers. And those taboos and um, in-groups are really, really powerful and we carry them through our lives. Now I'll tell you the truth of those three statements. I like all of those things. I was I about to say so, do I? I. <laughs> because I didn't become a professional musician out of hatred. I, I, I seek to embrace all styles and understand them in context and not to, to be someone that, that likes and dislikes because I put the context of like and dislike in its place. Um, there's so much more I could say on that, but, but let's carry on. <laughs> Learning to like all kinds of music then is a case of being exposed to different kinds of music. And that brings us to the question of music pedagogy, mm. which is a very controversial issue. It seems that many people have very negative experiences of learning music. I read once that there are an equal number of people who resent deeply that they were taught music and made to practice and a number of people who 
wish terribly that they had been taught music when they were younger. How can we do better? Indeed. Look, it's an enormous challenge and there there are lots of issues that feed into this problem. I mean, the people that resented being made to practice. I also see another story to that and that's people who I resented being made to practice when I was young and I gave it up and now I so regret that because I recognise that you know, some of my happiest times were made possible by being able to not be a consumer of music, but a participator, someone that was part of that story. So I think there's a a third paradigm there as well. Now, with regard to music education, this is something I'm particularly passionate about, and it is a really vexed and challenging area. You have got fundamental transitions in what music is, the extent to which it engages with technology, the extent to which music is a fundamentally privileged activity, then in order to be on the starting line of a music career, you need to have come from a particular background that empowered music learning from the age of about five, to have those parents who paid for the lessons, to have that sort of willingness to part with money, to give you that experience. Not everyone gets that, certainly not in Australia and definitely not throughout the world. So we've got in our education system particularly in secondary schools, a great compromise between what economically people are able to access and what schools wish to do. So that's one dimension to the problem with pedagogy. Then we've got the issue of why do we teach music? Because my passionate approach to teaching music has always been that people would know more and be able to do more as a result of having encountered my music programs. So it's about getting good at music in whatever form that takes. But a lot of the attitudes in secondary school particularly aren't specifically about that. Okay, I think none of them would say that it wasn't about that, but for a lot of them, they don't like an elitist view of being excellent at an instrument because they know there is that you know, economic problem of access associated with elitism, uh, associated with excellence in instrumental performance. And so it's about participation. And you get all these really, sorry, frankly, dodgy attitudes that you should study music because music makes you better at maths. Well, if I'm an educational bean counter, what I'm going to say to that is, well, more maths makes you better at maths. So why would I fund your music program? And it is so important that sitting behind the advocacy for music education is the notion that being good at music, being in, being capable at music, being exposed to music is good for its own sake. And we can't have the notion that because not everyone can be a virtuoso, that we shouldn't have excellence at the heart of what our music programs seek to do. And in this, music makes you good at maths. Music makes you a more socially aware and capable person. In some music programs, we've lost the essential element that music education should be about being good at music. So there's a lot of detail to unpacking those issues, but that broadly is, is what I am very keen on in terms of the way Uh, our tertiary music programs unfold, but also in the advocacy that I've engaged in with uh, music at sort of K to 12, kindergarten or whatever kindergarten is called now, to, you know, the upper end of secondary school. And of course, being a musician, being able to play music at any level is pleasurable in its own right, but it's not necessary in the way it used to be, in that there was a time where in order to listen to music, you had to play it, you had to sing if you wanted to hear music, because you couldn't just switch on your phone or your CD player. 
Now, of course, music is everywhere and it's very accessible. Most of the people on the train are listening to it. How has that changed the way we experience music? When did music stop being a communal activity and start being a product? Mm. Well, I would say that music has always been a product and is and will always be a communal activity. Um, but I will definitely acknowledge the fact that the way in which we engage with music and the way it's produced and the way it's curated has fundamentally changed. You know, you often hear people talking in terms of disruption, um, you know, Uber, the taxi industry, uh, you know, what Netflix is doing to free-to-air television, all these kinds of things. Well, you have got nothing on music. We have been coping with disruption for over a century. And we've very much come out the other side. Um, again, a, a, a little bit of history. Once upon a time, there was a magnificent role for a practical musician, not in a symphony orchestra, but in music hall. And in music hall, that transitioned into being part of uh, you know, a music group that would accompany silent film. Um, and then along comes radio. Along comes recorded music. And it happens over a period of time. But these things devastate the practical music industry. We, we look at the 1920s in the transition from silent films to talkies, and we see an entire generation of people being made redundant as a result of that. You see this slow burn of the gramophone, which, you know, enters the sort of public sphere in the late 19th century and, and gains steam. And what that does to you know, what used to be the family entertainment centre, which was a piano. Every middle-class family household would have a piano. Australia was one of the, you know, highest per capita owners of pianos throughout much of the 20th century, and that disappears. And it makes, it breaks my heart when I see um, pianos with the lids closed and photos used on them as though they are a mantelpiece and young children told, don't touch that, you might break it. Boy, I would much prefer them to break the piano rather than to have it sit there and gather dust. And uh, there was a, a piece, a little performance arty type piece I did a few years ago called Stroin, where I composed a piece. We had two pianos. One was a, a real grand piano and the other was a piano that had gone to seed, a piano that had died in the heat wave of 2008. And we actually, we actually had five of these and we did it over a series of concerts. And as part of a concert where music was performed, where my piece was played, we then, with accompaniment, destroyed this <gasps> piano. Now, bear in mind, the piano had died. The heat wave of 2008 affected thousands of pianos to the point where the, the soundboard was warped. There was no recovering the piano. Pianos have a lifespan about that of a human being. Um, and unlike, you know, a violin, like a Stradivarius violin, that they don't get better with age. They have their life and then that life ends and then they die. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you often get grandma's piano and grandma's desperate to pass it on. But in fact, that piano is just a disaster. It's likely to have borer or some other, you know, infestation in terms of termite. It can't hold its tuning anymore. That piano needs to be disposed of safely because it probably has got some kind of poison um, in, in the glue that holds the keys together. Uh, you can't just take them to the tip. The tip won't accept it. Yet you often get this sort of generational conflict because the younger generation doesn't want grandma's useless 80-year-old piano. So we destroyed these pianos in, as part of a concert. And I can see the look on your face of horror. And what was fascinating was... We had full houses for these concerts. Everyone knew they were coming to a concert where a piano would be destroyed by me, the composer, and by my colleague, who's a fine pianist. Um, and 
they knew it was coming. The netting around the audience was there because we were using sledgehammers and all kinds of you know chisels and things like that to gradually torture the piano. And there was a point to it all. And the point was that you hate this. You, you viscerally react to me striking the piano. But you won't part with money to train your children to be a pianist because that's what the middle class of Australia has decided. You won't value it by investing in these instruments to have them in your home. Very few homes nowadays have pianos in the living room as a central item. Mine does. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, but you and I, mine does too. But, <laughs> but we're the exception. Nowadays. But I don't play very well. And, 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 you know, it's that you play that's important. So it was a fascinating examination of the fact that we, we held the, hold the instrument in such high esteem, but only as a kind of historical oddity, not as a living, breathing part of our community. So I've, I've gone on a little uh, roundabout. Um, so once upon a time, the piano was that kind of central entertainment system. Now it's a flat screen television. Um, and soon it's going to be an iPad um, because at the moment uh, people have their flat screen televisions but sit there playing with their iPad while they watch them. So disruption in music is something that we are used to. And I could give examples of disruption from the introduction of poker machines into pubs in Victoria in the 1990s, which devastated the um, pub band industry and ended it more or less overnight. I could talk about um, the the streaming uh, and, and, you know, the... the um, uh, the early 2000s um, platform that, that, you know, music sharing that devastated uh, CD sales. Um, and now live streaming and subscription, which actually sees the music industry coming out the other side. So in terms of the capacity to make money out of music, recording and selling a song, that's been a loss-making endeavour for some time, for decades. Um, you recorded the CD and distributed because you wanted to drum up interest in your live concert, because you wanted to sell some T-shirts or other memorabilia, that has been much more profitable than, you know, most artists creating a CD or recording tracks and selling them. Yet with Spotify, we actually see a small increase in the amount of revenue that musicians are receiving. So um, whereas industries like the taxi industry are being devastated by this disruption, musicians are actually enjoying a degree of stability and are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel, having dealt with these problems for a long, long time. And what um, do you think the future holds? Well, look, that's hard to say. I think um, user-generated music is going to be big. Um, you know, technology that enables uh, people with very little levels of training to be able to create music that is very high end is something the industry is going to have to deal with. The other in terms, thing in terms of, you know, consumption of music is these bloody algorithms that uh, are used that on the basis of three or four listening choices, on the basis of your metadata and demographic, we will feed to you particular types of music that we think you're going to like. I already see young people, and I know me, railing against that, that we don't want to be fed music. We don't want some machine deciding what we should and shouldn't like and curating what we encounter in life because our tastes are actually much more diverse than that. And I think you'll find groups of users um, through social media, through emerging platforms, will create communities that stand up against these algorithms and actually curate 
user-generated content that will be very high-end, uh, and the professional musician will need to understand that and say, how do I reconfigure my skills and knowledge to be able to respond to those emerging communities? So I think the future is bright because music has always been a part of the human experience, and I'm confident it will always be a part. But we professional musicians may need to continue to adapt how we engage with the world. Well, we never know what the future holds, but I think we can say with certainty that it holds music. Tim, thank you very much for being part of Human Matters today. Thanks to today's producers, Sonia Ratton and Georgina Rampling, both students in media production at ACU. You've been listening to Human Matters, a podcast about what matters to humans from Australian Catholic University. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review it and share it. I'm Deborah Stone, and like you... I'm human.